Sam and Shushan are going to read our scripture for us this morning. Uh, As we do each week uh, from Acts, we're going through the scriptures, and they're going to read for us in Armenian and English to remind us that the gospel, God's word, is for all tribes and all languages and all nations. So go ahead, guys. Thank you. So I'm going to read in Armenian, and I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. So it's going to be Acts 24, 10 to 12. This is going to be in Eastern Armenian. Armenia has two dialects, Eastern and Western. We are Western Armenians, but this is in Eastern Armenian because in Armenia there's Eastern Armenian. So, Yerkusagala Nran Nishan Aretz, Vorhosi, Borosa Badas Hanets, Kidem Vortushad Dariner Iver, Ais Askit Adavornes, Usti Hujarutyamp, Emim Masim Badas Handalis, Tugaroges Imanal, Vordas Nergo Oritz Aviliche, Inches Patracelem Yerosarem, Yerbagutun Anelu. Inch voch dajarum, and voe martu head, Hosilis gam churches, ampoch havat keriskedel, voch overanerun, voch alkakum. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Amen. Amen. Lose my microphone there. Sorry about that. Thanks, guys. It's been a joy to get to watch God use Sam and Shushan um, across the world. They get to come and meet with us, our staff from time to time, and uh, been able to be in their house. I've eaten from your fig tree. They have an amazing fig tree at their house. Uh, my name is Aaron. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you joining with us. We are in the book of Acts, and we are, oh, let's see, last, last four sermons, last four teachings from the book of Acts. Today, next week, uh, Resurrection Sunday, and then two more. And uh, I missed you guys last week. I was in Oregon City meeting with a church there that wants to join our network. And so our network, the Harbor Network, asked me to go meet with their leaders. And so a group of us went there and took a family road trip. And I missed you guys. And it's always fun getting to worship with other people. But it's kind of like house sitting and sleeping in someone else's bed. It's like, that's cool, but I want to go back to my people. So I feel happier to be back with my people. So uh, we are, after the book of Acts, we're going to do our... Uh, a, a teaching series that we've done a, a few times before, a topical series called Things That Are Hard to Do. And I'll explain more about which uh, six topics we're going to look at, but it just gives us an opportunity to look at like some of the harder questions or some of the things that maybe just you know, are, are timely in our church community. And then after that, for the, the rest of the summer and into the fall, we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount, which actually ties into today's teaching because uh, the Sermon on the Mount really is if you could use this language like the constitution for the kingdom of God. Jesus came to establish a kingdom, and as he sits on the mountain and he teaches what is, what is the, the law for uh, his followers, for the kingdom of God, uh, it teaches us how to live as citizens of that kingdom. And so today, we are going to be talking, uh, because, because there's so much of it here at the end of the book of Acts, we're going to be talking about politics, 
Yay, right? Uh, it's a sermon that I have titled Paul and Politics, but then I realized we could just get rid of some of the extra syllables and just call it Politics. So you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. Whew, I had to get that one out of the way quickly. Uh, here's what I want to do. I want to pray, and then I want to dive in kind of Acts 21 through 26 a little bit, but, but primarily in chapter 25. So would you pray with me? God, I ask that you would help us now to have uh, receptive hearts to the truth of your word. God, would you help us be reminded that you are not far off and distant, but you are here with us. Lord, you're present in this room with us. God, you're present in our hearts and in the minds of those who have believed in your son, Jesus. And it's to him that we want to give our attention now. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would guide my words, guard my speech, that I would only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And would you give us all receptive hearts? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a few weeks ago I mentioned that these last few chapters of the book of Acts, really it's, it's, like, a, it's like a nonstop kind of thrill ride where it's political intrigue, escape by boat, you know, running for your life, standing before governors, standing before kings. Like there's, there's all this political intrigue. And I asked you if, you, if you haven't done it yet, I would encourage you to read like Acts 21 through the end. Just kind of read it all in one sitting. You could probably do that in about, I don't know, a half hour or so. And really see the way that it just like one thing, one thing, one thing after another. I did that myself a few weeks ago. And you start to notice just how many rulers and political leaders are everywhere in these chapters. First, we met a guy named Claudius Lysias. He's a Roman commander. He's there in Jerusalem, and he's in charge of the soldiers. He maybe is, is you know, uh, uh, like the chief of police or something like that. Then you've got Ananias. He's Jewish, and he's the high priest of the Sanhedrin. That's their ruling, governing council. It has some political authority in the life of Jerusalem and, and the nation of Israel. We met a Roman centurion. He's not, give, uh, we don't know his name, but he also has a position of importance, you know, deputy police chief or something like that. Then... They take Paul to, out of Jerusalem. They take him to Caesarea. And then we start meeting a whole bunch of other people. We meet Felix. He's the Roman governor of Judea. That means he's the, he's the one that Rome put in charge to rule over this whole region. And we meet his wife, Drusilla, and it says that she's Jewish. And, and it says that Governor Felix was well acquainted with the way. That's, that's the way of Jesus, uh, possibly even because his wife, Drusilla, is Jewish, and she understood that there was kind of this infighting between, you know, Jewish people, and some are saying that the Messiah has come, and others are saying that that's crazy talk. Then we met a guy named Tertullus, who is the lawyer for the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, and he is the one that's kind of the prosecuting attorney. He's saying, Paul is messing things up, and he's doing bad stuff, and he needs to be in trouble. And I also listened to the sermon that Pastor Steve preached last week. Great sermon, Pastor Steve. But you said slightly unkind things about lawyers uh, in that sermon. And don't you know that they're the ones who know how to sue you? Like, watch it, bro. Like, watch it. So uh, we love lawyers. It sounds to the Bible church, right? So, um. <laughs> so then Felix it's, did such a bad job of being a governor that he actually was removed. He was, he was taken out of power by the, 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 the head honchos back in Rome. And a new guy named Festus becomes the replacement governor. Uh, and he, he uh, you know, kind of took over and he, he inherits this prisoner. He's like, who's this Paul guy that's like hanging out? Why do I have this prisoner? What's going on? And then it says that this dude Agrippa shows up. Agrippa is the Jewish king. So uh, he's part of the family of the Herods and the Jewish people kind of hated the Herods because they were politically corrupt.
corrupt. And then uh, Agrippa it's, is, has, is traveling with Bernice, who's his sister, not his wife, although uh, it's a little confusing in the text of Acts chapter 25. But it's, it's actually his sister. And in fact, Agrippa and Bernice, their other sister is Drusilla, who was married to the previous governor. So it's like, it's like an episode. It's like the crown or it's something like, confu- it's like Downton Abbey or something. Who is this person again? And why are they? And who's married to who? And who's doing what? And there's like all these political leaders and some of them are Roman and some of them are Jewish. And it's all a big confusing political mess. But you can't escape the fact that Paul is constantly interacting with the ruling powers of his day. Constantly. In fact, he, he makes appeals to his citizenship. You might remember this when we were in Acts chapter 22. They were about to beat him for causing this riot in the temple. And he goes, no, 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 I'm a Roman citizen. You can't beat me without a trial. I, I forget the number. I should have written it down. But I believe that um, of all of the people in the Roman Empire, I think it was less than 4% were actual citizens. And that would give them a right to a trial and that would give them, you know, a right to an appeal and all that sort of stuff. So he appeals to his citizenship. He knows the right paperwork to file with the state so that his rights can be heard. When he is in prison, he knows how to work the the system because he requests a prison transfer. And he gets transferred out of Jerusalem to Caesarea because there's a plot against his life. He goes to court multiple times in these chapters to argue his case. See, that's why we like lawyers. Paul was acting, maybe he didn't like lawyers. That's why he was acting as his own attorney. I don't know. We have to parse this out. But he's, he's going to court and he's making his own appeal and he's making his own case. And he's saying, I am innocent of all of these charges. And then finally, in Acts chapter 25, where we land today, he appeals to the Caesar. Let's pick it up in verse 7. I'll show you this. Verse 7. When he arrived, uh, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and brought many serious charges that they were not able to prove. Well, then Paul made his defense. Here he is. He's, he's, he's interacting with the legal powers of his day. Neither against the Jewish law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I sinned in any way. But Festus, wanting to do the the Jewish leaders a favor, replied to Paul, Are you willing to go back to Jerusalem to be tried before me there on these charges? Like, we're here in Caesarea, but the, the supposed crimes took place in Jerusalem. You should go back to that city. And Paul goes, No, I am standing here at Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If then I did anything wrong and I'm deserving of death, well, I'm not trying to escape death, but if there's nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Oh, that's a bold move right there. That's a bold move. Well, Festus conferred with his counsel and he says, all right, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, you will go. Now, verse 13. Several days later, King Agrippa, he's the Jewish guy, And Bernice, his sister, arrived in Caesarea and paid a courtesy call on Festus. Since they were staying there several days, Festus presented Paul's case to the king and said, you know, there's a guy, he was left in prison by the last governor, Felix. And uh, when I was in Jerusalem, the, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews, they presented their case and they asked that he be condemned. Like they want him put to death. Well, I answered them that it's not the Roman custom to give someone up before the accused faces the accusers, so he has an opportunity for defense against the charges. And and so the accusers stood up and they brought no charge against him of the evils I was expecting. Instead, they had some disagreement with him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus, a dead man that Paul claimed to be alive. Can Can you believe that? 
Since I was at a loss in their religious dispute, I don't know how to answer their stuff. I asked him if he wanted to go back to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding these matters. But when Paul appealed uh, to be held for trial by the emperor, I said, well, he's got to stay in custody then until we can send him to the Caesar. So Agrippa, the Jewish king, said to Festus, the Roman governor, I would like to hear this man for myself. Tomorrow you will hear him. And for us, next week, we will look at that interaction. But I want to unpack a few things here because as Paul is interacting with the political powers of his day, he is able to do so in an incredibly gracious, in an incredibly winsome, but in an incredibly bold sort of way. And Paul, as, a, as a, somebody who I mean, quite literally changed the course of human history, people look back on his story in the book of Acts, and they look back on the various letters that he wrote, and they try to argue that Paul is politically like them. You could make a case, Paul, Paul must be conservative, right? Romans, Romans 13, it says to obey the governing authorities. First Timothy 2 says that the authorities are in place by God's decision. And, and you know, there's passages about traditional family values and traditional family roles and, and uh, you know, being, uh, you know, what does he say? You know, according to the ways of my ancestors, he's very conservative, that, that Paul is, is politically conservative like me. Others come saying, well, Paul is obviously very progressive because in 2 Corinthians, he talks about how he, you know, he can reevaluate the Torah, reevaluate the law, and it doesn't mean what it used to mean now that Jesus has come. And, and in, in 2 Corinthians 8, he talks about, you know, some people have a lot of money and other people don't have as much, so we need to share that, like distribute it so that there can be equality. Or, you know, the, the passage in Galatians, there's no more male or female or slave or free or Jewish or Greek. He's very egalitarian, therefore Paul must be progressive. Others look and like, no, he was just completely apolitical. He didn't even care, right? In, uh, in 1 Thessalonians, he talks about living a quiet life and keeping to yourself. Or, or 2 Timothy 2, you know, don't get involved in civilian affairs. Stay focused on spiritual things, he tells Timothy. And gosh, I've even read articles claiming that Paul was uh, an anarchist and a libertarian. And I mean, for crying out loud, we, we all want Paul on, on our political team, do we not? So you might be saying, okay, wh- where, where are you going with this, Aaron? Let me tell you where I'm going with this, and here's why this is important. Because we live in an age where politics has become the de facto religion in the United States of America. And even as I try most weeks to stand up and preach the gospel to Christians who have given their loyalty and given their allegiance to Jesus as king and to the kingdom of God, I feel like I am at times competing with an alternate religion for your attention and for your fervor. There is a place for political engagement, political activity, but it has for many not just Americans, but for Christians, taken the primary place of focus and energy and attention in our hearts and our lives. And and if you don't believe me, I have a scholar to help back me up on this. Now, in, in Europe, church attendance declined quite a bit over the course of the 18 and the 1900s. In America, though, we're more stubborn. People just kept going to church. In fact, the numbers held really steady all the way until about the year 2000. And over the last 20 years, there has been a 70% drop in religious participation. There is now a full 25% of our nation 
that would, when they fill out the census and it says religious, you know, adherence, they check a box that says none. It's the phenomenon known as the rise of the nuns, which sounds like an awesome, like a B movie, like nuns, like Catholic nuns, like rise of the nuns. It's not that at all. It is just no religious affiliation whatsoever, a full 25% of our nation. And there's some reasons to not be gloom and doom about those numbers necessarily, because I think there is some, uh, you know, it used to be uh, socially beneficial to be a regular churchgoer, even if you didn't genuinely believe the gospel and, and trust in Jesus. And now that that's kind of been stripped away, we're left with like, no, this, this, is, this is more about, like, it, it costs you more to be a part of a community of faith following Jesus. So we don't have to be so gloom and doom about it. But nonetheless, we are living in a very different reality. And, and there's a scholar named Shari Hamid who wrote a recent article in The Atlantic. I didn't, I didn't, I want to quote you kind of a lengthy quote from this. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. I did link to it on the church's website. I encourage you to read it. His family is from Egypt. They, uh, his parents moved to the United States. He was born here in the United States. They're Egyptian and, and Muslim. And he wrote a recent article called America Without God, How Politics Has Replaced Religion in America. And I found his insights from somebody who, who comes from a different faith tradition, comes from uh, you know immigrant family, to be incredibly insightful. This is what he says. He says, if secular people hoped that declining religion would make for more rational politics, drained of faith's inflaming passions, they are likely disappointed. As Christianity's hold in particular has weakened, ideological intensity and fragmentation have risen. American faith, it turns out, is as fervent as ever. It's just that what was once religious belief has now been channeled into political belief. Political debates over what America is supposed to mean have taken on the character of theological disputes. This is what religion without religion looks like. He talks a little bit more about how politics used to just be profoundly boring. But he goes on to say, since the end of the Obama era, debates over what it means to be American have become suffused with a fervor that would have been imaginable in debates, say, over being Belgian or the meaning of Sweden. It's rare to hear someone accused of being un-Swedish or un-British, but un-American? That's a common slur slung by both the left and the right against each other. Being called un-American is like being called un-Christian or un-Islamic. It's a charge akin to heresy. This is because America itself is almost a religion. As the Catholic philosopher Michael Novak once put it, the American civic religion has its own founding myth, its prophets, its processions, as well as its scripture, Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Federalist Papers. In his famous I Have a Dream speech, Martin Luther King Jr. wished that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. The very idea that a nation might have a creed, a word associated primarily with religion, illustrates the uniqueness of American identity as well as its predicament. We're in a unique nation in the history of the world. We're in a unique time in our unique nation. I had a conversation with somebody after the previous worship gathering in which they said that they have lost a lifelong friend over divisiveness over politics. In the last year, I haven't spoken to him a year. 
Christian brothers and sisters in Christ divided over politics. Households divided and fighting over politics. And as we look at the Apostle Paul's example, I am utterly convinced that the only reason that Paul was able to do what he did and interact with the powers of the day the way that he did is he was living out the politics of the kingdom of God. Paul was living out the politics of the kingdom of God. And, spoiler alert, we should too. Let me explain what I mean. I want to zoom out a little bit. What did Paul believe? What, what is it that he held on to that helped him to live in this way? There are eight things I want to point out to you. The first one is this. He believed that God is sovereign, that God alone is sovereign. That word sovereign, you know, for us in the church, it's kind of a theological term, but just think of it in the terms of like monarchs and monarchies and rulers. Like I am sovereign over this domain. The kings and rulers claim to own things. They claim to have uh, authority and power. And for a certain period of time, they do. But do you know who owns everything ultimately all the time, forever and ever? Only God. Because you know what happens to kings? They die. Do you know what happens to presidents? They die. Do you know what happens to prime ministers and senators and congressmen and all mayors and all that? You know what they do? They die. Like I literally looked it up. There's like a perfect track record. They have all died, except for the ones who are still in charge right now, but the, the trend line is not looking good. Okay? God alone owns everything. God alone is sovereign over everything. All authority that exists is ultimately derivative from God. That's why Daniel chapter 2, that Paul would have grown up reading as a little boy in in Torah school, he would have known that Daniel chapter 2 says that God sets up kings and God removes kings. And he would have known Proverbs 29 where it says that the king's heart is like a stream of water that God can turn wherever he wants it to go. God alone is sovereign. Earthly kings and kingdoms have authority, but it's all derivative. Number two, the Apostle Paul believed that earthly governments do have a God-given role. So sorry, anarchists, Romans, Romans 13 is in there. Where it talks about submitting to the governing authorities. It says, look, they, they're an agent of God to do you good. They, they, they bear the sword. They have, the government has the power of force to stop people from harming other people. That is what government exists for. First Timothy chapter two, he talks about, you know, praying for your governing leaders so that we might live God honoring, peaceful, quiet, safe sorts of lives. So there is a God ordained role for government. And I am thankful uh, for those times. And I've, I, you know, I have a, I have a story. I'm not going to tell it now, but one time I found myself standing in front of two very bad guys, very bad guys, and a circle of police officers with their guns drawn. Yeah, they should have warned me that that was what was going to happen. I was the bait. It's a long story. I'll tell about it later. But I was like, once my adrenaline, once my heart rate came down from about 280, uh, I was like, I'm very glad that there are, you know, people who can help keep me safe in a situation like this. At its best, that is what government is meant to do. But Paul also believed, number three, that earthly kingdoms bend toward empire. That we, as human beings, there's a, there's a, there's a sinful tendency in all of us to grasp for power, and authorities do it, and, and when it's collectively in the nations, it bends toward empire. I mean, in First Thessalonians, or sorry, Second Thessalonians, he talks about, look, you are suffering, you are being persecuted, you are being oppressed, 
by these governments. But don't worry, God, God will sort it out and God will bring his judgment upon them. Think about even just the framing story, like for Paul. What has what, what Paul read and lived in his entire life up until that moment? The nation of Israel was founded after God set them free from the evil, tyrannical dictatorship under the Pharaoh in Egypt. The founding story of Israel is slavery in Egypt, tyranny, oppression. Then they get to go into the promised land and establish their own kingdom. And it's, yay, it's good. And you get David, you get Solomon. And then what happens? All the kings, all the descendants, tyranny, injustice, and oppression. And so God removed them from the land at the hands of Babylon for crying out loud. They were in in slavery and exile in Babylon. And then God used Persia to set them free. They get to come back home. Yay, we're back home in in the promised land. We're back home in Israel. And then who shows up? Alexander the Great, the Greeks, Antiochus Epiphanes, and then, oh, Rome. The entire story that Paul has been taught and lived in his life is Egypt, Babylon, Rome, Egypt, Babylon, Rome. Don't try to tell Paul that governments don't bend towards tyranny and oppression. And in fact, if you'd like to do your homework as well, I suggest this thing called the internet where you can check history and you will find that empires and nations bend towards oppression and and control. And they overstep their God-given boundaries. Psalm 2 says the nations rage, kings make all sorts of plans. But number four, Paul believed that Jesus came as a king to inaugurate a kingdom. That's why in Romans 1.3, he calls him the son of David. He's triggering all of that king language that Jesus showed up. You know, you know sometimes we, we talk about Jesus just came to save our souls. And that's, that's one part of it. But Jesus came to establish God's kingdom on earth. He came. I mean, it says, you read the, the book of Matthew, read, read the gospel of Matthew. It's just, he went about preaching the kingdom of God. He went about preaching the kingdom of God, kingdom, kingdom, like literally hundreds of times in the gospels, the kingdom of God, this, the kingdom of God, that, the kingdom of God. If, if God was in control, it's, this is what it would look like. What did Jesus teach his followers to pray? Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. Why? Things on earth are really messed up. And Jesus came to inaugurate God's kingdom. Paul also believed that this kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate is universal. It is not just for the Jewish people, Paul says, It is for all nations. That's why all throughout the book of Acts, we've had our scripture readings be in multiple different languages because this good news is universal. And in fact, it's not just global. I use the word universal on purpose because in Colossians 1, one of the letters that Paul wrote, he kind of loses his mind. He's, he's, He's quoting this hymn and this song about how he's the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. And he, he's the firstborn from the dead and all things hold together in him. And Paul actually says that Jesus came to reconcile all things. I don't know if you've checked recently, but all things is all the things. He came to rescue us from our sin. He came to redeem us into right relationship with God. He came to reconcile us uh, man and man where we would no longer be fractured and divided. But he came to reconcile even the creation itself and all of the cosmos unto himself. It all belongs to Jesus. Jupiter belongs to Jesus, which is awesome. 
nebulas and stars that we haven't even discovered yet. They all belong to Jesus. His kingdom is so much bigger than one skin color, one political party, one particular personality type, one political theory. It all belongs to him. And number six, Jesus demands full allegiance as king. Full allegiance. No half-hearted, no partially in, partially out. You're either in or you're out. You know, what's interesting. There's a, there's a, a famous letter, uh, a famous part of a letter that Paul wrote, Philippians. And the first half of this, this hymn is all about Jesus' humility. And that's the part that gets quoted all the time. He, you know, though he was in the very nature of God, he uh, humbled himself, took on the nature of a servant. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Like that, all that humility of Christ, which is great. But you know what? That's the first half of the song. That's just the first half of the song. The second half of the song in Philippians chapter two says, then because he did all this, God highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no halfway in, halfway out with Jesus. Every knee will bow and every knee will either bow now in humility and repentance to say, ooh, he is the rightful king. I will bow my knee and submit myself to his authority or one day the scriptures tell us that he will return in judgment and every knee will bow at that day and face his judgment. Every knee is gonna bow. By the way, if you'll allow me a brief aside here on this idea of pledging loyalty We've been talking about baptism a lot lately because we're going to be baptizing some people next Sunday. And if you've not been baptized as a follower of Jesus, we want to baptize you. I recently came across some scholarship from a a pastor and a professor named Alan Street. And I learned some things that were really interesting to me. You know, sometimes when we talk about the waters of baptism or even the Lord's table, there's a word that gets used, the word sacrament. And that word's kind of loaded. It's got some baggage because over the years, you know, particular people in the Protestant tradition, they view it as, you know, well, we don't call it sacrament because it's like works that we would do to earn God's, you know, to earn salvation from God. So we don't use that word. But um, others use it to just mean like it's a, a sacred act. It's something that is a sacred act. And I found out recently that the word sacrament is not a Christian word originally. It was a Roman military word. When Roman... When, when Julius Caesar became the emperor, he started using the word sacrament for the soldiers who would sign up for his army. It actually, uh, the language in, in some of the historians, like Tacitus, they, it says that the soldiers would receive the sacrament. It's there in, in Latin. They would receive the sacrament in which they would pledge loyalty to Caesar as Lord. Caesar is Lord, is what they would have to say. And they would pledge their life under penalty of death to the Caesar. They would pledge their life to their fellow soldiers. And when their time of service was up, they would be rewarded handsomely. To take the sacrament, to receive the sacrament, was something that a Roman soldier did. Here come these early Christ followers, these weirdos, these people of the way. And they say, ooh, we like that word. And we're going to start using it when we are baptized in water and pledge allegiance to Jesus as Lord, not Caesar as Lord. Alan Street writes this. He says, the church in the first century as the locus and earthly manifestation of God's kingdom was the antithesis of the Roman Empire. Through baptism, 
Believers sided with the kingdom of God and rejected Rome's dominant narrative that it alone possessed a divine right to rule the world. Another kingdom under another Lord had arisen to challenge Rome's claims and ethical practices. When Christ followers submitted to baptism, they committed an act of resistance against Rome. What an idea. I need to add that to our baptism class. An act of resistance against Rome by becoming a part of a movement that challenged Roman ideology, its hierarchy, and rejected Caesar as the ultimate Lord. For many of the original uh, followers of Jesus, baptism was the initial step that led to persecution and even death. Baptism was a boundary-crossing ritual, as in a proverbial line drawn in the sand. When crossed, it meant breaking formal ties with the past, declaring fealty to another Lord, and accepting a new and alternative identity, Christ follower. As such, baptism was a political act of subversion or a right of resistance against the prevailing power structures of the day. Is there any wonder that the early believers were challenged to count the cost before taking the plunge. (laughs) This is purely hypothetical, but try to imagine that if we were baptizing you, that meant you no longer said the Pledge of Allegiance or sang the Star-Spangled Banner. What if by getting in those waters of baptism meant you no longer received a tax-deductible credit for your charitable contributions to the church? Jesus wants full loyalty. He wants us to hold nothing back from him because Jesus held nothing back from us. Jesus was drained of his blood. Jesus Jesus was drained of his breath. Jesus gave everything on the cross and what looked like the greatest moment of his failure was actually his enthronement ceremony as the rightful king over all things and with his arms stretched open wide, he's saying, I'm inviting you to get out of that kingdom of darkness you're in and come into my kingdom. And it leads me to number seven, that Jesus' kingdom just is, it just operates so different. Such a different ethic. It's upside down. It's backwards. It's inside out. It doesn't look like the kingdoms of the world. In in Romans 14, Paul writes that the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy that come from the Holy Spirit. He says that. You know, what's really interesting is that Rome at the time had a motto about peace. Do you know about the Rome's motto of peace? The Pax Romana. You ever heard that? The peace of Rome. Do you know how they achieved the peace of Rome? By killing anyone who wasn't peaceful. Let me tell you what, that's effective. You crucify people by the thousands, you line their bodies up on the road, and you say, hey, everybody, you see that? That's what happens when you don't be peaceful. You're going to get some peaceful people. Paul comes along and says, the kingdom of God is righteousness and joy and peace that comes from the Holy Spirit. That the kind of peace we get as as members of this kingdom, it's it's not an outside-in peace, it's an inside-out where God's Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and actually transforms us from the inside out. It's like a totally different system. It's an inside-out, upside-down kingdom. And he writes, says, instead of the Roman eagle with its talons and claws, Jesus summoned people to a different kind of empire. Peacemaking, mercy, humility, and a passion for genuine restorative justice. 
Saul of Tarsus, born and bred a Pharisee in a world shaped by the wisdom of Greece and the religion of the East and the empire of Rome, he came to believe that Jesus from Nazareth was Israel's Messiah and the world's true Lord and that this Jesus had called him, Saul, to take the good news of his death, resurrection, and universal lordship into the world of wisdom, religion, and empire. It's just a different type of kingdom. Don't you wish those, you know, what were those words? Peacemaking, mercy, humility, a passion for genuine justice. Don't you wish those words described more of our earthly kingdoms? But instead, we can think of a lot of words to describe our earthly kingdoms that don't match with this. And so that's what makes it so hard sometimes to learn how to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Which brings me to eighth point. I think this is the last one. You know, they teach you in like preaching school, you know, three-point sermon to support the main point. You guys are getting eight points today. Extra points. Paul believed that the kingdom of Jesus is now and yet to come. It is here. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is now in your midst. When Jesus had that crown of thorns placed on his head, when, when the sign that says king of the Jews was put on his cross, that was his inauguration ceremony. It's here. He rose from the dead to prove that all of his claims are true. The kingdom of God is here. But then Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15, says things got, there, there's an order to these things. He said, Christ, the first fruits, Christ already rose from the dead, but when he comes back, everyone who belongs to him is going to rise again. Then, he says, then comes the end when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father when he abolishes all, listen to this language, abolishes all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet and then the last enemy to be defeated is death. What's the old saying, you know, the two constants in this world, death and taxes. Apostle Paul says, not in the kingdom of God. When Jesus returns, no more taxes because all rule and authority and powers have been abolished and we just live under God's direct rule. And no more death because we have the hope of eternal life, the resurrection from the dead. But here we are, we still have death and taxes and we're waiting for Jesus to return and fully, like, consummate, bring to completion what he started 2,000 years ago on that cross. These are the things that Paul believed. These are the things that shaped Paul's worldview and enabled him to interact with the political powers of his day. These, these eight principles, there's so much more. I mean, this could be a, this could be a whole semester where we, where we really dive into the politics of Paul. But I, I, again, I circle back around on this. Why this is so important. Shadi Hamad, in his article, he says, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the kind of the political fervor that you see. There's a, there's a religious fervor on the right, and, you know, in the, in the form of Trumpism. And there's a religious fervor on the left in the, in the form of the wokeism. And Shadi Hamad, this a Muslim man, says, look, America has been left with a God-shaped hole in its heart. And we're trying to fill it with alternative religions. And I love you, church family. Jesus gave his life for you 
to be a member of the kingdom of heaven. And I am not saying that that our earthly kingdoms don't matter. They absolutely do. But if there are competing loyalties and competing allegiances, then you are betraying the king who gave his life for you. Presidents come, presidents go. Senators come, nations come, nations go. The author of Hebrews says we're part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus never has a term limit. He doesn't get voted out of office. That is where our priority lies. So let me leave you with a couple of quick thoughts, points of application, a few things. Two at once. Be less political and be more political. Confused? Good. By being less political, I mean... Put your priorities in order. We've been given eternal life through the blood of Jesus and we're fighting on stinking Facebook? Really? Facebook? I haven't been on social media in six months. I have never been happier in my life. Yet that six months is up here on April 1st. I was looking like, maybe I'll get back on. And then I started prepping the sermon. Like, no, I'm going to go throw my phone in the lake. Less political. Do you, do you have political interactions with people, whether in person or on Facebook, that leave them saying, yeah, I really want to join the kingdom of God? Or are you out there with a flamethrower and scorched earth? But also be more political. Meaning, the politics of the kingdom have real world applications. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. Get ready for it this summer. That's our constitution, Christians. Go feed somebody who's hungry. Go get involved even in local political stuff in your, in your neighborhood. Get, get, get uh, you know, uh, take in a foster kid. Get baptized. Be political. Get baptized. We'll give you a sticker afterwards that says, I baptized. I got baptized. <laughs> <laughs> Less political, simultaneously less political and more political in a confusing upside-down kingdom of God sort of way. Three and four, think cosmically but act locally. And by think cosmically, I don't mean like, you know, the hippies in the 1960s, okay? I mean, remember that Jesus is the king of the whole universe. America is too small of a prize by itself for our King Jesus, So I pray for Jesus to rule and reign over America, but that's not enough. And act locally. Paul used every opportunity he got to tell people about Jesus. We're going to see in a couple weeks, he could have been released. Felix and Festus and Agrippa, they're all like, there's nothing, there's no charges that stick with this guy. Like, let him him go. But oh, he he appealed to Caesar. Now we have to keep him in prison. You know why Paul did that? Because he wanted to tell Caesar about Jesus. Every opportunity you get to tell people about the kingdom of God. And then lastly, number five, pray for Jesus to return. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And in a moment, when we go to the Lord's table and we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, as meager as the simple act is, this, this meal, it is a reminder that one day Jesus will return and we will celebrate with a feast to end all feasts, the Bible tells us. And until that day, we cry out, come soon, Lord Jesus, and may we be loyal. Lord, I I thank you that we are part of a kingdom who cannot be shaken. 
Lord, if there be anyone here today who has not placed their faith in you and sworn allegiance to you as king and bowed the knee, I pray that they would do so. Lord, because your kingdom is a, is a different kind of kingdom where earthly kingdoms are marked by war and strife and corruption and all sorts of just evil. Lord, your kingdom is marked by righteousness, joy, peace, and love. Lord, would you forgive us for not living truly as citizens of your kingdom? Lord, would you break us of our addiction to earthly politics and that our fervor, our passions might be spent more rightly on things of the kingdom of God? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.